Well, welcome. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you're joining us this morning for worship. Um, I want to encourage you, if you uh, don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to open them up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your seat or the seat in front of you or next to you. Uh, please grab one of those. Uh, if you don't own a Bible outright, then we encourage you to take one from the table in the back. That's going to be our gift to you this morning. So please do not leave here without a Bible if you don't own one. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, as Freka uh, just read for us. And let me just give you a little bit of context before we dive into the text. So uh, in chapter 10, earlier in chapter 10, we see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples on a mission. And this mission is done with his authority to do what he did, to preach, to teach, and to heal people. And earlier in the chapter, we see very practical instructions for that mission for the disciples. So they're told where to go, and they're to go to the people of Israel first. That's verse 5. They're told how to go, so with no supplies, relying on God's provision, moving with urgency. That's in verses 9 through 15. Uh, We see what they are to say as they go. So they're they're supposed to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in verse 7. And they're also told what to do, which is to heal the sick, which is to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. That's in verse 8. And then last week, we saw Jesus explaining what it would be like as they went and did all of these things. So we saw that they would be vulnerable, vulnerable, like sheep amidst wolves in verse 16 that they'd experience intense questioning and and interrogation and be tempted to be anxious over what they would say. That's verses 17 through 19. And then Jesus looks on ahead of the mission that's right in front of them into their future in ministry. And and, and he prophesizes that they'll experience verbal abuse down the road, that they'll experience physical abuse down the road, that they're going to be persecuted and hated by all, including people in their own households. And so last week, we really focused on the cost of being on this mission. And this week, we're going to see the comfort that we receive when we're on this mission. Before we jump into the text, let's pray one more time. Father, we are so grateful for your word, God. Thank you that it's available to us. Thank you that we can hear from you. I pray now, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to be able to receive your word, Lord. God, thank you for how much you love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jumping into verse 26. Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, it would be very natural that as the disciples are told what the cost of the mission is that they're about to go on, uh, that, they're, that they'll soon experience this verbal abuse, this physical abuse, uh, this persecution, it would be very natural for them that they would fear those who would be responsible for that happening to them. But we see the opposite being commanded by Jesus here. He says, so have no fear of them. Why? He says, for... Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The first comfort that Jesus gives his disciples is that nothing that they're about to experience will go unseen. Now, I think if we read this verse in isolation, we might not see this as a comfort. So we're sinful, so we tend to have guilty consciences. So there's this old story about this prankster who wrote 10 letters to 10 different businesses in the city, 
And the letter communicated the same thing in, in, in each letter. It basically said, all of your secrets have been discovered. Leave immediately. And within days, all the business owners, they packed up their businesses and they left town. And the point is, is that everyone has some dark corners of their hearts, dark corners of their lives, dark corners in how they conduct their business, which the fear of being revealed leads to a lot of anxiety. Now, that's not what Jesus is getting at here. This is, this is not a word of conviction, at least right here. Remember, the, these are words of comfort for his disciples as they are sent out. And according to Jesus, it is very critical that his disciples know that nothing that is about to happen to them will go unseen. This is going to give the disciples comfort, and it gives us comfort as we go for two reasons. The, number one is for the sake of justice, and number two is for our commendation. So for the sake of justice and for our commendation. Number one. No injustice, regardless of whether that injustice is minor or major, will go unaccounted for. This is a theological principle. There is no crime, there's no sin, no matter how secretly it was committed or how meticulously it was hidden and covered up, that will not be revealed at the end of time. The reason why kids tattle and snitch on each other is because it is at the core of who we are as humans. Like, we know that wrongs should not go unpunished. That in and of itself is an injustice. It's so basic that our children know it. They, they can, like, feel it inside of them. This happens multiple times a week in the Moore household. I'll hear, Daddy, Chloe laughed at me. Or I'll hear, Daddy, Davey hit me. And their appeal is not just for me to know about it, but to do something about it. They're like, Daddy, render justice in this situation. Well, our Father in heaven knows, and he will render ultimate justice. Romans 12, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when we suffer injustice like the disciples did for preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus, that will be accounted for. We do not have to tattle, we will not have to snitch on anyone. God sees, he knows, and he will repay on our behalf. That ought to be a comfort. But it's not just for the sake of justice that this is comforting. It's also for the sake of commendation. Jesus said earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God sees the injustice being done to his disciples, but he also sees the righteousness that is exhibited in its response. So when we do not avenge ourselves, when we turn the other cheek, when we actually bless those who persecute us, which is what Paul's talking about earlier in Romans chapter 12, that is something that is seen by God. It is something that is delighted in by God, and it will be rewarded. It will be rewarded somehow materially in heaven. We're not exactly sure what that looks like. The Bible's not 100% clear on what these eternal rewards look like, but we know that we will receive 
eternal rewards, but we'll also get the personal commendation of Jesus Christ himself. When we hear those words that every Christian longs to hear at the end of time about them being said by him, well done, my good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, verse 21. God's comfort for the Christian who experiences persecution while being faithful to the mission is that God sees all he, he will render justice for those who are abused, and he will render rewards for our perseverance in that mission. Therefore, in light of that, look at what he says next in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you heard, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The word proclaim there, it's it, Greek, kariso. It means to preach. That's the same word we see is to preach, to make publicly uh, known very loudly. In other words, this isn't a secret message that he's giving to his disciples. This isn't something to be ashamed of or afraid about communicating. This is something that you talk about openly. That phrase you see there, to, to say it in the light, it means in, in our modern English to, to say in broad daylight. So even when that message might lead you to be verbally or emotionally, even physically harmed and persecuted, the disciples are exhorted to have confidence in this message. Now, there are certain contexts in which it might be foolish to put this message right on blast to the whole world. I, I think this is said in the context of being wise as serpents, which is what Jesus said as we covered this last week. And to be strategic in how we preach and proclaim the gospel, that there are various contexts in the world right now where the public mentioning of Jesus' name will land you in prison or have you even killed. But Mercy House, that is not our context here in Amherst, Massachusetts. So let us be careful that as we are here, that we are not shying away from the mission because we are afraid of the consequences or because we are ashamed of the message. Let us all have the confidence and the heart of Paul, where he writes to the Romans in chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And boy, did Paul believe that. Our boy Paul preached the gospel all the time. He literally did it on rooftops. He did it in prison. He, he preached arguably when he shouldn't have, but he was compelled to do it. So even when that led to people picking up rocks and throwing them at his head until he got knocked out cold and was left for dead, and then when he came back to consciousness the next day, guess what he did? He did more preaching. He did more proclaiming. He declared the name of Jesus. So this isn't someone saying that who didn't know what it meant to preach while there is threat of violence or persecution. Mercy House, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be afraid to say Jesus' name. Don't hedge. Don't be coy. Don't be shy about what Jesus has done in your life. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this earlier, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. But what do I say? This has to be the number one roadblock that I think many of us have with evangelism. We just don't know what to say. Maybe we feel like Moses did when God sent him on his mission. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
either in past or since you have spoken to your servants, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. You ever feel like that? I do. We talked about this last week, but I want to say it again because I think Jesus brings it up again. We can make this more complicated than it is. We can make this more complicated than it is. We can make it about eloquence. We can make evangelism about having lofty arguments and using sound philosophical logic, when in reality, Jesus tells us that we'll have supernatural help through the Holy Spirit who will give us the words to speak in that moment. That's verses 19 and 20. But also, look again at these verses, verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So what is the message? What, what do we say? It's what Jesus is telling them. It's what he's been whispering to them. Their mission is not to go and to fabricate their own story, to come up with what they think is a really compelling sales pitch. He is literally saying, what I tell you, tell that to everyone else. Say that, proclaim that. This isn't rocket science. The the job of a preacher is very simple. It is to reiterate the word of God. That's what we're endeavoring to do every single Sunday morning from this pulpit. There is nothing new under the sun. You're not here for my insight. You're not here for my take on our culture and, and my philosophy. Like, that's not why I'm here. We're all here to hear what Jesus has told us in his word. And once we hear that, then we go from here and we say it again in broad daylight. We proclaim it on housetops so that the world can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the mission. So let's not overcomplicate it, Mercy House. Okay, you might say, we know what to say. We know that God sees all, and so there will be ultimate justice and there will be rewards but I'm still scared to talk about Jesus. I think that's fair. I want to say that it's okay that you feel that way. Thankfully, Jesus' comfort is not complete. Look at these next verses. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus acknowledges the fear of the disciples, but he tells them that that fear is misplaced. The disciples will be tempted to be afraid of people who will have the authority to drag them into interrogations, who will have the power to lock them up in dark prison cells and to throw away the key, who will have the power in some situations to even put them to death. And instead of Jesus saying, hey, don't be scared, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, he tells them that there's something that they should fear even more than that. He gives them a context for their fear. We currently, and by we, I mean my family, the Moors, we have two cars with two red inspection stickers right now because we have failed uh, our inspections. And if if you're from Massachusetts, you know that if you get a black R 
sticker, then that's like a minor failure. You can still drive. You just need to make sure that those things are fixed and you get it reinspected. If you have a red R, like that's a safety issue. You, you are barred from driving on the roads with a red R. And so if you are with me in my car this afternoon and I say to you, man, I'm a little scared of getting pulled over, your response should actually be, actually, Pastor Tommy, I think you should be scared that the wheels are going to fall off and we're going to go careening into oncoming traffic. I need to have some context for my fear. There are greater things to be afraid of sometimes than what my mind latches onto. Now, don't be afraid. We've completed the repairs. We just need to go for the reinspection, so it's okay that we're driving these cars. We have 52 days to get that done. Humans might have the authority to malign you and persecute you. They might have the authority to make your life very difficult. They might have the power to take everything of value away from you. They might have the power to take away your life. But Jesus is calling his disciples to remember that there's more to life than just our flesh and our bones. We are not just bodies. We have eternal souls as a part of who we are. That yes, sometimes when we proclaim the gospel and share the name of Jesus with our neighbors, it might feel like it is the end of the world. And for some people, it might be the end of their world as they get martyred for their faith. But the end of your world is not the end of your existence. The destruction of your body is not the destruction of your soul. Do not get those two things mixed up. So, don't be afraid of people who have authority over our bodies. Be afraid. Have a reverent fear of God who has authority over our bodies and our souls. Now, I really don't think that this is God flexing his power so that we submit out of powerlessness under his thumb. It's not like a parent saying, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. I don't think that's what God is doing here to try to get us to enter into the mission. This is not a threat from God, okay? How do we know this? Just look at the next verses. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus flexes his power as God for just a second there. He gives us a glimpse of his supreme authority over our bodies and our souls. But then just as quickly, and with greater emphasis, there's a comfort. It says, look at the sparrows. You can get two of them for a penny. Meaning, look how inexpensive they are. Consider how insignificant they are, how inconsequential they are. But here's the crazy thing. Not a single, inexpensive, relatively worthless sparrow falls to the ground apart from God. That word, translated uh, as apart from in many of your Bibles, it's, it's meant to say that the bird does not die without the knowledge of God, without the consent of God, even invoking a sense that a sparrow doesn't die without the presence of God. A sparrow. A sparrow. I don't think this is meant to say something unique and special about sparrows. I think you could replace sparrow with any living creature. And that is because God is intimately involved with his creation. Intimately involved with his creation. But then Jesus goes on to say, you think that is special? You think that is intimate involvement? The hairs on your head are numbered. Meaning, God is peculiarly, really intensely interested in us as humans. 
Yes, he is intimately involved with his creation, but humans are the only creatures in all of creation that are created in his own image, Genesis 1.27. He is uniquely enamored by each of us. God does not look down on his creation like we look down at an earthworm in the dirt indifferently, impersonally, a little grossed out at it. That is not how God looks at us. God loves humanity. How much does God love humanity? He sent his son to die for humanity. That's a song we sung earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is not flexing his power and authority over our bodies and our souls to beat us into submission to the mission out of fear of the consequences. Look at what he says next in verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, don't be afraid. It's a little confusing. He just said, fear God. But here's, he's saying, don't be afraid. Even though God has the authority to destroy your body and your soul, because you are of great value to him. We're worth more than many sparrows. I tried to figure out how many is like many. Like, are we worth a few sparrows? Are we worth a dozen sparrows, maybe a hundred sparrows, and in God's wisdom, he used a word that means a large and indefinite quantity. So we don't know exactly how many sparrows we're worth. And that's because the purpose of Jesus' words here is not to quantify his love for us, but to communicate the greatness and the vastness of what it means for us that he cares for such a tiny half-cent sparrow, and then how much more he cares for us. So suffice it to say, we are worth more than many sparrows. Now, why is this ultimately a great comfort for the disciples and for us as we're on mission to proclaim the gospel? Because it is a great reminder of God's great love for his people. Jesus is not sending his disciples out as just inanimate pawns on a game board to be sacrificed for some generic greater good. He is not a heartless strategist just orchestrating our lives uncompassionately. God cares intimately for us. He he is always in control and he will always be at our side. These are the comforting words that we need to hear and that we need to remember that will help us obey his command to preach the gospel and to make disciples in the face of great fears and anxieties that God says that I am, I am for you. I am with you. I am working all things for your eternal good because I love you. I care about you. That's the comfort that gives us confidence to go out as sheep amongst wolves. Now, Jesus concludes this little section with these verses. Verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These verses show us what Jesus' expectations are for his disciples. He's expecting them to acknowledge him before others. This means to stand up for Jesus. More literally, to confess Jesus. To confess means to declare to be true or admit the existence or reality or truth of. To profess Jesus, which means it's being done in a manner that is accessible to or observable by the public. This isn't a believe silently in your heart type of faith. This is a proclaim 
Declare, make known, defend the name of Jesus. Now this is important because the context of everything we've read up until this point is specifically attached to, it is applied to those who are doing this. So Jesus' words are not a generic blessing to all people. These are specific, purposeful blessings that are given to and experienced by those who are acknowledging Jesus before other people. It's very hard to make light of this connection, especially when the ultimate blessing of salvation is paired with this confession of Jesus' name to the world around us. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we die, we will stand before God, the righteous judge, and we will be laid completely bare before him. Every moment, every second of our existence, the good, the bad, the ugly, the vile, it's going to be known and it's going to be displayed. And as we are judged based on the criteria of God, which is absolute spotless perfection, the only thing preventing us from being given our just judgment of eternal punishment for our sin that is laid bare before God is going to be Jesus. He's going to step in front of us and he's going to say, this one is mine. I have paid their debt with my life and they have been given my perfect record. That's what it means to be acknowledged to God the Father who is in heaven. The reward of professing Christ to others is that Christ on the day of judgment will profess our name. He will declare our name. He will defend our name in this heavenly court of judgment. But on the other hand, verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The consequence of denying Jesus before others is that we, on this last day of judgment, as we stand before the Father, the Father will look over to Jesus and Jesus will deny knowing us. That matter at that moment, terrifying place to be. Mercy House, it will not matter at that moment that we know the name of Jesus. The name is not the secret password for getting into heaven. Jesus already talked about this. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The comforts and promises in these verses are not for everyone. They are specifically for those who acknowledge Jesus before others, those who are evangelizing his name. And this is because it's not merely about knowing the name of Jesus, but as we just saw, doing his will. And his will for us, as we're seeing this morning, is to preach and to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Do you see how critical the mission is, Mercy House? Why it's so important that Christians profess Christ to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our families and just random people on the street? Because in that act, it reveals our actual belief and our faith in Jesus. If you believe, you will profess 
If your faith and your trust is in this gospel, you will share that gospel. Jesus won't deny you before the Father because you didn't do your job to evangelize his name. He will deny those in front of the Father who didn't believe in him because we didn't put our faith in him, because we didn't put our trust in him, because we were ashamed of him and and denied knowing him by not proclaiming his name. Evangelism is a product of genuine belief and faith in Christ. Christians profess the name of Jesus to the world. Now, what does this mean for those of us who struggle with evangelism? What do we do if we're not professing professing Christ? If we're denying him, whether overtly or passively by refraining from confessing his name? What does that mean for us? Well, at the very least, it means that we ought to acknowledge Jesus every chance that we're given. That's step one. If someone asks you what you're doing this weekend, you can tell them, I'm going to church on Sunday. If someone asks you what you're doing on Wednesday night, you can say, I'm going to midweek Bible study. If someone asks you what you're doing for the holidays, you can say, I'm celebrating Easter with my church. If someone asks you, hey, what are you reading these days? You can say, I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew. If someone asks you, what do you believe? For crying out loud, tell them, I believe in Jesus Christ. Like that is the bare minimum. And we're going to call that basic evangelism, which is essentially not denying Jesus and acknowledging him every chance that we're given. We ought to, at the very least, do that, Mercy House. Then there's advanced evangelism, okay? So advanced evangelism means being wise like a serpent and looking for chances to acknowledge Jesus while being innocent as doves. So this is not just a reactive acknowledgement of Jesus, but a proactive proclaiming of Jesus. You guys see the difference? Instead of waiting to be asked, what questions can we ask? What are you doing this weekend? How do you celebrate the holidays? Do you go to church? What does faith mean to you? Hey, I'm having a really hard week. What are some ways that you navigate challenging seasons of life? Maybe if you're feeling really risky or you just don't want to beat around the evangelism bush, you can straight up ask them, what do you believe? How how do you understand our existence? What are we all doing here right now? What do you think about God? Remember, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be strategic and be gentle. Be sneaky, but be genuine. At the end of the day, this is not an optional application of the text into our lives. This isn't a matter of topping off with a little more sanctification at the top of our faith, like for some more marginal gains for us to be a little bit better as a Christian. According to Jesus, whether or not we're telling people about Jesus is a matter of our salvation. So we need to work this out in ourselves. We need to pray about this and ask the Lord for help. We need to read and trust the word and and deepen our faith and deepen our trust in him. We need to rely on the Spirit for courage, for compassion, for words to speak. And we need to do this with others around us. We need to let others know, I stink at evangelism. And I don't want to stink at evangelism anymore. I want to make Jesus' name known. That's a confession. And then we repent. We ask for prayer. We ask for accountability. We ask for someone to just come with us. Just like the disciples who early on, they went out two by two. Mercy us, we must do this. We must do this. Now, evangelism is costly. We talked about this at length last week. 
but it's not a cost that we pay for salvation. I want to make that very clear. This is not the cost of our salvation. It is a cost that we pay very willingly because we are saved by God. That is a big difference. Look at how Jesus drives this home in these next verses, verse 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are some jarring statements from Jesus, especially verse 34. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Like imagine that on a Christian mug or bumper sticker, right? In a lot of ways, it makes sense that Jesus' disciples might expect their time with him to be full of peace. Like the Old Testament prophets spoke in unison regarding Jesus' reign and rule, that it would be a time full of peace and harmony. One of the uh, more popular ones is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So you understand there might be some confusion, but Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. Jesus came to bring peace with him, not to bring peace on all of earth. And as long as there is sin, as long as there is rebellion against God, as long as there is this rebellion, there are going to be opposing factions, and as long as there are opposing factions, there cannot be peace. There will eventually be peace. Once sin and rebellion are dealt with finally by God, there will be no end to that eventual peace which Jesus will rule with in the new heavens and the new earth. But this here is Jesus revealing the nature of his mission on earth. And it is not to make sure that everyone plays nicely with one another. His number one priority is offering peace with himself. And that is the number one priority of his disciples who are sent on his mission, to offer peace with God. That's what they're preaching and what they're teaching. And Jesus is letting them know that at certain times, the cost of preaching peace will be opposition and violence. Faith in God is either the greatest unifier or it is the greatest divider. A lot of us know this to be true. That's true as the disciples engage with the mission out in the world. It, it's also true when they engage in mission in their own households, and both of which are called to be done. Reaching our families is quite honestly, maybe for some of us, the hardest mission field there is. And many of us would probably prefer to be sent to the far reaches of the earth with no Wi-Fi, no running water, than to go and have to preach the gospel to our parents or to go and have to have spiritual conversations with our brothers and sisters, or to go and to share our testimony with our aunts and our uncles and our cousins. Why is that? I, I think that there can be lots of reasons for this. Maybe you have a great relationship with your family, and you don't want to throw that off by having spiritual conversations. And every time you've tried in the past, it hasn't gone well. 
So you don't want to throw away or make that water murky or, 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 or roughen the seas in those relationships. Maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum. You have a terrible relationship with your family, and maybe you're not even on speaking terms with them. And so thinking about having a spiritual conversation with them is like not even on your radar. And so in one case, I think you might think, I- I've got a lot to lose. In the other case, you might be thinking, I don't have very much to gain by this. But our families need Jesus. Our families need the gospel. And compassion ought to be a motivating factor for evangelizing our families, but that's actually not the route that Jesus takes here. He, again, is connecting it to the disciples' obedience to his words. Jesus is commanding them to profess his name. And if we don't do that because we value our earthly relationships with our families more than him, or maybe we value our own comfort by not having to have hard conversations with our families more than him, then we are not worthy of him. Verse 37 says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. My purpose is not to guilt you by asking you, do you love your family enough to tell them about Jesus? Because I think the question posed in these verses is, do you love Jesus enough to tell your family about Jesus? Jesus uses the image of bearing our cross. That's one of submission and obedience to God. And part of picking up our cross and following Jesus is to share the gospel. And so a very practical question is, are we obeying this command to preach and proclaim and confess the name of Jesus? Because if we love our families, if we love our reputations, if we love our lives so much that we won't preach the gospel, then we are not worthy of Jesus. Jesus is demanding our all. He is demanding complete surrender, our absolute allegiance to him, where everything in our lives becomes secondary to Christ. Verse 39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This means that if we are holding on to our earthly life and everything that is in it, we will lose our eternal life. But if we surrender our earthly life for the sake of Christ, on the mission to proclaim his name, we will find eternal life. Now, I want to pause, and I want to say that evangelizing our families can be uniquely hard. I think this is why Jesus uses it here as an example of the ultimate thing to surrender. Families are tough. Sharing the gospel with those that we know, whom we've known for a long time, it can be uniquely hard. Jesus himself even struggled and is very sympathetic to this. I call this hometown hater syndrome, okay? This is what I mean. Look at Mark chapter 6. This is going to be on your screens. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. This is Jesus. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. You'd think that would be good, but just follow along. Saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Humans are so prideful, and sometimes this pride is strongest within our families. When there is a perceived pecking order or a structure of how people ought to relate to one another, usually this has to do with age dynamics, but it is seated in the culture of a family that's been established over time. And then here comes Timmy to throw that all off. You hear things like, I... I knew Timmy when he was a baby. I used to change his diapers, and now he's preaching to me? Jesus' family and those who knew him didn't just have a hard time listening to him. It says they took offense at him. Their hearts were so hard in their pride that they missed out on hearing from the God of the universe as a preacher. Why? It wasn't because he was a bad preacher, I'll tell you that much, but because of their pride and their hardness of heart. Mercy House, it can be uniquely difficult and challenging to reach our families. Jesus can attest to this. People in your family, people that know you well, they may not ever be able to see you beyond your younger, unconverted self. That kid who knew nothing, that child who never accomplished anything, which is fine. That that is honestly a a shame on them for not being able to see you for anything more than that. But Mercy House, don't you get stuck about thinking about yourself in that same way. Don't you shy away from preaching the gospel to your family because you think you're just a kid with nothing to offer. Hear what Paul says to Timothy. A young preacher probably often looked down upon because he's relatively young. He doesn't have the real world experience. Look at what he says. First, uh, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Preach the gospel, Mercy House. It is the power of God for salvation. You might have nothing else to offer, but if you have the gospel, you have everything that anyone would ever want or need. And so preach it to your friends. Preach it to your coworkers, your families. At all costs, make the name of Jesus great. As an act of obedience, yes. But thankfully, this isn't just an act of self-sacrifice. There can be some incredible fruit. There is something to gain from all of this. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. We'll finish up for the day. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives, I'm sorry, let me start over. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is telling his disciples that this is not a vain task. This isn't all just a monotonous and painful experience of self-flagellation. The purpose of evangelism is that it is the means by which God has promised to bless the world. This is the way that God is doing it. And yes, there will be persecution. Yes, there will be rejection. But there will also be reconciliation. And there will be redemption. 
Whoever receives this gospel that we bring to them will receive Jesus. And we've already talked about what it means to, be, to receive and to profess Christ, that Christ will receive and profess them at the end of time. Mercy House, if you are a Christian and you are here today, it is because someone else took that risk. They paid that cost. They professed Christ to you, knowing that they could blow up that relationship. They could ruin that relationship forever. That they could be mocked, made fun of. They could have been hurt, brutalized. But they did it anyway. They professed Christ to you, and now you are reaping the benefits of peace with God and eternal life with Him. The cost is high. The risk is great, but the potential reward for your friend, for your, your coworker, for your roommate, for your mom, for your dad, for your brother, for your sister, for your aunt, uncle, whoever it is, your best friend, the reward is an infinite and eternal reward. Mercy House, don't you want to be a part of that? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus risked everything. He paid with everything in order to reward you, his beloved, whom he knows how many individual hairs are on each of your heads in order to give you peace with him. When we take communion, we remember this and we experience this peace with God. That's what this meal is. In the first century, you do not sit down and share a meal with your enemies. You sat down and shared a meal with those that you were closest with, those that you had peace with. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're sharing a meal with one another as brothers and sisters, and most importantly, we're sharing it with Jesus, whom we have peace with with. So as we take communion this morning, let's remember that we're worth many sparrows, that we're worth an infinite number of sparrows, because we're worth the life of God's one and only Son. And as we reflect on that, let's respond with surrender to Him, to count nothing as more valuable than Jesus. We might have a hundred reasons why we don't want to evangelize. Lay those at the feet of the Lord this morning, and Let's follow him at all costs. Let's start by proclaiming his name here in this house, and then we will go out into the valley. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for how you have taken the energy and the effort to communicate your great love for us. God, thank you that you care for us more than a bunch of sparrows, God. Thank you that you care for us enough to send your son to die for us, God. Thank you for loving us that much, God. It is humbling. I certainly don't think that I'm worth the son of God, but that's what you've demonstrated on the cross. God, I pray that our response to our salvation would be to go and to offer that same salvation to others, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is marked by a love for your word, that is marked for um, a, a, a desire to run to you in prayer, but also is marked 
for our desire to make your name known among the nations, God. I pray that you'd grow us in this, Lord. Help us to, uh, to do this, Lord. We confess that uh, we are scared sheep, God. Um, and Lord, I acknowledge this personally, that there are plenty of times that I shy away, God. Help us to have a confidence in you and your message, Lord. Help us to have the humility, God, to make it not about ourselves, but to make it about you, Lord. And I pray this morning as we respond by taking communion and as we sing these songs, Lord, I pray that, that, that those physical actions would prepare us for this week ahead, Lord, that we would practice worshiping you, practice proclaiming your name here in this relatively safe space of church, Lord, so that we can do it outside these walls. Lord, we love you. We thank you for preaching and for proclaiming the word to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.